We're continuing the book of Romans today. Take a Bible. We have Bibles in the pews. Let me give you a page reference just before we pray. What book did I say? One of the greatest books in the Bible, a Bible, a book that God has used for revival and reformation throughout the centuries. And our text is Romans 8, 1. Romans 8, 1. And that's on page 1756. 1756. Don't you love the book of Romans? No, you don't. You love the Lord. But you like the book of Romans. You really, really like the book of Romans. You like it a lot. I do anyway. It has been a tremendous blessing. And you know, as a pastor, I try and share with you what has been helpful to me. It's pretty hard for me to give you what has been helpful for somebody else. I have to give you what God has specially blessed me throughout the years, the few years that I've walked with him, not the many long years that I've walked with him. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we open your word this morning, we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to be our guide, to be the one to convict us of of sin, to convict us of our need of Jesus, to lead us into truth. And the most important truth we can know, Lord, is, is the truth that affects our relationship with you. More than anything else, you want us to understand who we are in Christ. And that's what we'll try and show this morning. And when we know who we are in Christ, then we are ready to serve you and to serve our fellow man. So bless us this morning. And if there are controversial things that are said, help us to be open-minded, open-hearted, to realize that not all truth is in just one verse, but this one verse can be a profound truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week I took you into Romans chapter 5. You might want to open to Romans chapter 5 as well as keep your finger in Romans 8.1. And I'll read the text in Romans 8.1. First, then I'll refer back to last week and try and tie these things together. So Romans 8, chapter 1, in the many translations of the Bible, it differs from the King James. I'll tell you briefly why it differs. In Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That is the verse I want to speak on this morning. And why does it not have the rest of the verse uh, as it does in the King James? Because that goes into verse 4. So this is what we call a textual issue. There are many of them in Scripture. Usually preachers don't draw your attention to them, but they should at least be aware of them. So it's not that in these modern translations they're trying to just skip certain things, we have the rest of the verse as it's worded in the King James 
in verse 4 where it says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh or the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So you get it in verse 4. All right, so back to verse 1. Therefore, there is how much condemnation? No condemnation. That's an important phrase for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 7, there is no obvious direct link between chapter 8, verse 1, and the end of chapter 7. For example, at the end of chapter chapter 7, it says, um, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Here's what I think is uh, a reasonable way to look at the flow of the argument of the Apostle Paul. He has told us in chapter 1, in verse 2, that there is something called the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the life, death, and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrection, and so on, right? So it's the good news about Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinful man. That's the good news of the gospel. And Paul is is giving them maybe fresh insights to this church members in Rome to the gospel. So that's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 2, I believe it is. And then in verses 16 and 17, he says there that this gospel, look, look back to chapter 1, that he's not ashamed of this gospel. He's eager, verse 15, he's eager to preach it to those in Rome. I'm not ashamed of this gospel, verse 16, chapter 1, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, first to last, as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. So this is a kind of main theme, a thesis statement, if you like. And the rest of Romans pretty much expounds that concept. Why is this so important? Why is this so powerful? Because of verse 18 and all the way through to Romans 3.20, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, we have a contrast between those who are righteous through faith, right with God, and those who are wrong with God who are under His wrath. And if you continue reading, I don't have, I'm not able to do that this morning because of time, but if you continue reading to, through chapter 3, verse 20, this means the whole Gentile world, the whole Jewish world, everyone on planet Earth is under the wrath of God. They're all under the condemnation of God's law. Every human being has broken God's law, right? Therefore, is not in a right relationship with God. They are, they are lawbreakers, and they are subject to the penalty of the law, which is death. That's the bad news. 
The good news is that God has made a way through Jesus Christ that the whole human race can receive just good news and not bad news. In other words, can be saved from that wrath. And anybody with half a brain, but this is not an intelligence thing, is it? This is a spiritual understanding thing, would flee to Christ and have their sins forgiven and acquitted and be justified by faith. In, after verse 20 of chapter 3, he says, but now, verse 21, but now, no, notice that phrase, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith, verse 22, to all who believe there is no difference, all of sin and fall short, all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is not new for you. I've briefly talked about it in other sermons. Chapter 4 is very important to understand justification by faith because it uses the examples of Abraham and David to get this concept over that no matter how ungodly you are, no matter how wicked you are, through, by turning to Jesus in trust and faith, you can be justified and made righteous with God, declared righteous with God. That is the good news of the gospel. Okay, so that comes through in, in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, therefore, since we have, past tense, been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope every person here this morning has the peace of God upon them. Often that's one of the things I talk about and I look for when I'm with people who are troubled. Are they at peace with God or not? And if they're not at peace with God, you have to find out why they're not at peace with God. That's part of what a Christian is supposed to do. If you're really going to be a physician of the soul, you need to do that. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice. So there's another hallmark of the one who is justified by faith. We rejoice in our sufferings uh, because we know that rejoice in hope of the glory of God and we also rejoice in our sufferings, verse 3, and so on. And then I'm just jumping ahead to verse 5, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Now, the reason I went to verse 5 there, I didn't need to, I could have just stayed at verses 1 and 2 on the blessings of justification by faith is to bring in the Holy Spirit. Because when we go to chapter 8, and we'll only go to one verse of chapter 8 this morning, other weeks we'll go to the other verses, but when we go to chapter 8, we're going to find a lot of discussion on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings the life of Christ to us. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I, that he, that I go away and that He comes. He's the one who carries on the work of Jesus, not just in some little spot in Palestine, but throughout the whole globe at the same time. The third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. So He's going to be mentioned over and over and over again in chapter 8, and He's introduced here in chapter 5. I want you to see something of the connecting link 
between chapter 5 and chapter 8. Let's go to um, verse 16 of chapter 5. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. Who is the one man? Adam. We've, we've covered that. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. There's that word. That's why I'm showing you this verse. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So there's the contrast. You're either condemned under the wrath of God, or you're not under the wrath of God because you're justified by faith. Right? So see that comparison. Because in, in Romans 8, 1, it doesn't say justification, but it just says condemnation. But you have to see that the, both concepts. And then verse 18 uh, consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. All right, so there's the condemnation, justification idea in Romans 5, in the, at least, it's in the whole chapter, but it's mentioned specifically in those two verses. Now go to verse 20 and 21, and I think we're going to connect it with chapter 8. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Do you remember I kept bringing out this much more, the overflowing much more of grace um, as against sin and death and as against law too. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, here's where we're making the connection. There were people in, in Paul's day, just as there are people today, who object to what he taught and object to what I will be teaching this morning. In fact, if you're sharing the gospel the way that I feel the gospel should be shared in these last days on planet Earth, you will be considered controversial Paul certainly was. There were those, for example, who said, okay, if grace is so big and so massive and covers everything, we can live any way we want. It really doesn't matter because grace is going to cover all of our sin. Have you ever heard that before? Turn to chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? What does he say? Oh, yeah, that's reasonable. Certainly not. By no means. It's unthinkable. Obviously, a person who concludes that has failed to understand those first five chapters. Of course, Paul, he's a very wise man. He knows what the Jewish thought world is. And he knows very well that there would be people who would reason that way. And so he anticipates that criticism. And that's all that chapter 6 is. Now, don't get me wrong. Chapter 6 is a glorious chapter. And I just can't wait to preach chapter 6. But I'm going to have to wait a little while for that. But all that chapter 6 is, is answering an objection answering a difficulty. It's not the main part of his argument on justification by faith. You could take chapter 6 out and still have a very strong case that Paul is establishing 
for the importance of justification by faith. Now, what about chapter 7? So I look on chapter 6 as a kind of like a parenthesis. Chapter 7, I look on the same way. Not that there's not wonderful things in chapter 7. It's all the Word of God. It's all important. Do you know that some of the most glorious teaching in the New Testament is almost a casual afterthought on Paul's part? Think of that amazing chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. Usually you have it read on the resurrection, just uh, on, on the time of Easter, or at a funeral memorial service, or something like that. But chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and yet it's really just, just responding to confusion amongst the church members in Corinth. That's the beauty of inspiration, that a preacher and certainly a, a prophetic man like Paul can almost make uh, a casual response to something, and then it turns into beautiful truth. Anyway, chapter 7 is dealing with those who say, okay, we're not of those who believe that Yes, we believe that grace can co covers everything, but, but we're not of those who just feel like you can live any way you, we want. No, we're just the opposite. We believe it's really, really important to live by every aspect of the law, to be guided by the law. And so, so chapter 7 is Paul dealing with the role of the law for the Christian. So he starts that by saying, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law. And then he gets into <laughs> all of this material when he says, the things I don't want to do, I do do. And a lot of Christians say, yeah, that's me, that's me. In fact, someone actually said that when I preached it once. They actually said it, and I heard it in the front row, and they said, no, that's not you. And he probably thought I was nuts. Everybody else in the congregation probably didn't even know what we were talking about. It was just between him and me. But he, but he was he was having a hard time living the Christian life. The things he didn't want to do, he does do. And I tell you, I have the hardest time believing that that is a good picture of a Christian when the same man who wrote it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I think, obviously, chapter 7 is a very, very misunderstood chapter and I hope that we're able to deal with it at some point, but at the moment, just look on it almost as a digression, chapters 6 and 7, almost a digression to deal with difficulties, objections to this teaching of righteousness or justification by faith, and then when we come to chapter 8, he picks up his main argument again, having dealt with those two difficulties of sin and law, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All right, so hopefully, whether you agree with me or not, hopefully that makes sense, that chapter 8 links up with chapter 5, and we have one main argument trying to show the importance of a person being justified by faith. So this word, therefore, is a key phrase. We had it at the beginning of chapter 5, a therefore statement, and we have it here at the beginning of chapter 8. So if you miss 
Everything he said in the first seven chapters, pastor, what's this law thing? I want to do this, and I don't want to do that. If you miss all of that, you can nail it down in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, to summarize, this is the main point. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question before I go any further. And I could have asked the same thing in chapter 5 when we were talking so much about either being in Adam or being in Christ and this much more, much more of grace. Let me ask you this question. When, we, when you read and hear something like, there is now no condemnation, what does that do for you? Tell me, speak to me now. This is one of the few times when you can speak to the pastor in the sermon. What does that do for you? Gives you freedom or sense of freedom, sense of courage. I like those two words, freedom and courage. Anybody need freedom and courage this morning? Yes, Joan? Victory, what a great word. It gives you victory. Anything else? What about, Andrew? Encouragement. Wow. Do you not think those members in Rome, possibly one day being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, people pouring pitch on them to set them alight, do you not think they need encouragement? Don't you think you need encouragement when, you, if, when all you have to do is just burn a little bit of incense to Nero, who's considered Lord? It's all you have to do. And no one's going to touch you. No one's going to touch you. No one's going to touch your family. You keep your job. Everything's fine and dandy. Just burn that little bit of incense and call Caesar Lord. Not a big deal, huh? But many wouldn't do it. Only Jesus is Lord. And they had to get that message over, and some of them died for that belief. Don't you think church members in Rome, as in some parts of the world today especially, where it's tough to be a Christian, need encouragement, need courage and strength? What about the word confidence? Isn't one of the problems that we seem to struggle to really know quite where we fit into this whole plan of salvation thing? Is it God doing everything? Is it me doing something? Am I, is my faith going to stay strong when everything's crashing around me? Everyone in my neighborhood is telling me I'm wrong on the Sabbath day? And, I'm, and I and my church are, and the message that we proclaim is responsible for all these calamities coming on planet Earth. You had better know the Lord Jesus Christ and you'd better know where your salvation is when the tough time comes. So what about confidence? Should a Christian have confidence? Isn't it wrong to say that you know that you're saved? Don't Seventh-day Adventists say it's wrong to know, to say that you're saved. Actually, Seventh-day Adventists don't say that. That's a big myth in Adventism. I know there's plenty of Adventists that say that. But if you read very carefully into Seventh-day Adventist teachings, what I'm preaching this morning, the idea of assurance, wow, what a wonderful word. 
assurance that despite all of your defects, I mean, how could you be more defective than to be called ungodly? Is there any term in Scripture that's worse than that one? Sin is not as bad as ungodly. Ungodly means you are nothing like God. You're totally out of whack with God. And yet Romans 4 teaches that the ungodly are justified through faith. So assurance, confidence, and some of the words that you used, encouragement, courage, all of these are wrapped up in this little word, no. Therefore, takes us back to the seven chapters and keys us up for the rest of the, of the chapter 8. But the no, therefore there is now no condemnation, is emphatic. It's not a term you can water down. We must totally get away from the way of thinking that when a Christian makes mistakes and when a Christian sins, that that Christian is somehow, some way, condemned. That's not what the Bible teaches. This condemnation is not to, to be thought of as an experimental thing, even though it has, obviously, ex when you have peace with God, that, uh, for some people, is very experimental. But it's really a status thing. That's the way to understand it, the best way to understand it. It's your standing with God. So your standing in, with God in chapter 5 was either in Adam or in Christ. Those were the only two options that were given to us, right? You're not half in Adam, you're not half in Christ. Well, notice in this verse that the in Christ idea comes through too, and I'll deal with that in just a few moments. So no is strong and it's emphatic. It means never can be any condemnation, never will be any condemnation. But pastor, if you say that, that's a dangerous teaching. That's almost encouraging people to sin. Some Christians do think that way. Probably did in Paul's day. You know, if people beat you up for what you teach, they must be pretty ticked off. And they certainly beat Paul up more than anyone, it seemed. And Jesus didn't do too well either. They nailed him to a cross. It says, the one who comes to me will never be condemned. There was a woman caught in adultery. The law said she should be stoned to death. What did Jesus say? Is there no one? No, before he ever says, go and sin no more. See, go and sin no more is what we should do. What we're trying to understand this morning is who we are in Christ. Before God ever asks you to do anything, He redeems you. He tells you what He has done for you. So in our class this morning, we talked about done before we ever talked about do. And probably that was a little confusing for them at the beginning. Hopefully by the end of the class it wasn't. But before God ever said to Adam, till the garden... He gave him the promise of redemption. Before he ever asked the Israelites to keep the Ten Commandments, to do those ten laws, he says, I have redeemed you. 
I have delivered you out of Egyptian slavery. So that's what I mean, the done. The done by God is always emphasized in Scripture. You'll find it over and over again, all the way through Scripture, before He ever says, do. No one can do and live a righteous life the way that is pleasing to God unless they know what God has done and have accepted that through faith. I can do all things through Christ. If that was the only part of the verse, we'd say, Paul's a pretty remarkable man. He probably can do a lot of stuff that I can't do. Through Christ who lives in me. And the only reason that Christ lives in you is because you've accepted what he has done 2,000 years ago before you were ever born on Calvary's cross. All right, so no condemnation. And if you don't understand con condemnation, and I must admit, when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, what really is condemnation? I mean, we think we know what it is, but what really is it? And I don't want to necessarily spend time on this, but if any of you are taking notes, you can write this down. It's really what he says from verse 18 of chapter 1 right through to chapter 3, verse 20. And it's really not a pretty picture. It's talking about the human race that's totally out of whack with God, that they're ungodly, that they're wicked, it's not that they don't know truth or enough truth to, to get connected with God. They suppress that intentionally. That's what he teaches. And so it's, it's the Sodom and Gomorrah stuff. It's, it's the people in Noah's day where God says, I'm sorry that I even made humanity. Isn't that one of the saddest, saddest statements in the whole of Scripture? So it's all that negative bad stuff, totally alien to God. That's what it is. And the glorious truth of no condemnation is that God can forgive all of that and a whole lot more. And all we do is come with the empty hand of faith and grasp it. That's all we do. And you know, faith itself is misunderstood. Faith is never spoken of as a work. Faith is something we exercise, but it's also a gift of God. So whichever way you cut this cake, God has to get the glory, because this salvation is all of Him. And this is one of the important themes that comes through in the book of Romans. And it, and it is, by the way, one of the most glorious truths this righteousness by faith, justification by faith idea is one of the most glorious truths that actually started the Protestant Reformation. Now, I think you'll be encouraged, those of you that came to Footprints of Paul, to know that one of our guests who came to the Footprints of Paul, who wasn't exactly enamored with Ellen White, is now reading The Great Controversy. See how God can work? We don't browbeat people. We just guide. We just point. 
we lead them into truth. We need to be patient. We need to be loving. And all the time, even before we ever met this person, the Holy Spirit was working and working, working in their lives. And I suppose the challenge for us in working with people and trying to lead them closer to truth, because this person does know Christ, praise God, is sometimes to just get out of the way. Don't be a stumbling block. Just point them. Let the Holy Spirit do His work. All right, so therefore there is now no condemnation, never can be, never will be. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. Now, he could say, because Jesus died for you on the cross, and he has done that already numerous times up to this point in the book of Romans. But in chapter 5, this is why I think the link between 5 and 8 is so important. In chapter 5, he started saying things like NIV translation, through our Lord Jesus Christ, or some term similar to that. So this idea of our union with Christ was actually brought in earlier in chapter 5. And, um, and I suppose we could understand that from the sense of, well, we're not united with Adam anymore. We're now united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that, those of you that were here last week? So here we have one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ Jesus. It's going to be a very important thing to understand. You can think of justification in numerous different ways. We've talked about a courtroom, that you are accused of a crime, ungodly, wicked, enemy of God, a sinner. All those terms are used in these early chapters of Romans. And you know that you've committed the crime, or crimes, plural. You know you're, you feel guilty, you are guilty. Hey, they have it on DVD. Don't you think there's a heavenly DVD? Don't you think the technology in the heaven is advanced enough that they can at least have DVD, everything recorded on video? Hmm? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible talk of heavenly books? That's what it's conveying. Every word, Jesus said, is going to be accounted for. Every thought, every word, every action, everything that you and I have ever done is recorded in heaven. I don't see too many uh, people smiling at this point. wonder why. Because if we're honest... We know that we have failed over and over and over again. And if it wasn't for the mercy and the grace of God, we'd be lost for eternity. We also know, if we know our Bibles, that God never winks at sin. That there isn't some small white lie that you told at some point in time that God can say, okay, pull the carpet up, sweep that one under, and get that carpet back down, glue it down so it never can be pulled up again. God can't do that. 
every sin of every human being on planet Earth from the time of Adam until Jesus comes back or until he finishes his high priestly ministry is probably what we should say. Every sin has to be paid for. And there's only one person that did that, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins were all laid upon him 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's the whole point of why Christ came was to take, pay the sin penalty for the human race. And he did that in full. Nothing missed. Not one of your sins missed. Not one of your mistakes missed. Everything paid in full. And all he asked from the human race is to accept that through faith and trust and belief in him. All those terms are used in Scripture. Probably they all have slightly different shades of meaning, but I think most of us can understand it's, it's about total commitment to Jesus Christ. You just know that there's no way that you can atone for your own sins. Now, you can have a man-made religious system that you can invent, or the devil can invent, that tells you you can atone for your own sins. And you can make it very sophisticated, very complicated, and you can even bring people like Mary into it. But when you're face to face with God, it's not going to cut it. Christ and Him alone is where our salvation is found. I saw the Pope carrying a, a bouquet of flowers, and I was told it was for the Virgin Mary. Hasn't anybody told him that Mary is awaiting the resurrection? You need to send a letter to the new pope. Let him know these things. Say, hey, I read this in my Bible. So this idea of no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, and when are you in Christ Jesus? When God says forgiven. When God says, I declare them righteous. That's when you're in Christ Jesus. There's no separation as far as time is concerned. We only distinguish for the sake of intellectual understanding. The, suit, the moment that somebody puts their trust in what Christ has done for them is the moment that they're brought into the family of God. For some of us, that is very, very dramatic. It was for me. Some of you know my story. It literally was night and day. But for many, it's not. And it's not that one is more saved than another. This message of no condemnation is not just for the, the best Christians, the really good Christians. It's for all Christians. There's no distinction there for all those that are in Christ Jesus. If we're not in Christ Jesus, if we don't have the Spirit of God, then we're none of His. There are many in the Seventh-day Adventist church. There are many in every Christian denomination who think they're saved and are not saved. All I can do is try and shed different light on this so that you and I examine ourselves and make sure we should know for sure whether we're in Christ or not. 
Every one of us should know the wonder-working power of the Holy Spirit, even though I admit the Holy Spirit can work imperceptibly in our lives. I have no doubt whatsoever that God, through the Holy Spirit and, and the angels, were working overtime to bring me to Jesus. Was I aware of that? Not at all. As I reflect back now and I start filling the pieces in and God enlightens my mind, yes, I can see God working in numerous different ways, changing even my desires, giving me some kind of, of thirst for spiritual things even before I was saved. And of course, once I was saved, then it became really clear where did, where did that booze go? Where did the foul language? Hey, it's gone. How did that happen? And I guess we struggle when, yes, we thank God for those amazing, incredible, miraculous victories overcoming, but where we struggle and where the devil gives us a hard time is when not everything goes. That's negative, and that's bad. And I sometimes wonder, Lord, why did you take some things and not others? And I'm sure he has a good reason for it. After all, it is a relationship. And he is working something out throughout my Christian life. And growth, I suppose if we grow spiritually from zero to, to nine feet, that, that might, <laughs> no pun intended, might be a stretch. No, our growth in Christ is often imperceptible, but it's real, and it's important. And I think because God wants us, see, ultimately, why did God save you? If you think of God saving you just so your sins can be forgiven, that's not good enough. And if you think it's just so he can declare you righteous, as glorious as that is, that's not good enough. The goal is to bring us to glory. So to live a holy life, you could say, there's many good answers to the question, but you could say, he has redeemed us for holiness. And even higher than that, he has redeemed us to enter his glory. You and I, to be with almighty glorious God who is perfect who when, when the, one of the greatest of the prophets, Isaiah, said, woe is me, I am a man undone, when he caught a vision of God. It put Paul in the dust. And that's where man's righteousness should be, in the dust. But God is perfecting his character in you and I, holiness, righteousness, not just in name, but in experience is the goal for God for all of us. And the devil knows that, and he will do everything he can to take away the power of these precious promises. Do you ever think about that? It's one thing to have someone like me or someone you listen to on the TV or you're reading your Bible and you think, wow, this is, this is impacting me in a way it's never done it before. It's one thing to have that in a positive sense, but what about the negative taking away of the devil? And if there's the one thing he does not want us to understand and grasp and experience, 
is this concept of righteousness by faith. It's why the Seventh-day Adventist to this day is still struggling with this. Many, many of our members do not have the assurance of salvation. To me, that is an absolute tragedy. Doesn't mean to say that they can't be saved. We're not saying you have to have assurance of salvation and have to have the confidence and security of your salvation to be saved. We're not saying that. The Bible doesn't teach that. But we should have it. It should be the norm. When I read the book of Acts, and we spent some time in the book of Acts, and some of you reminded me about that, when we were in the book of Acts, and we were seeing the, the amazing things that the Holy Spirit was doing in people's lives, there is no hint of lack of assurance. Yes, there is before Pentecost when the disciples are hiding away and running scared, but after Pentecost and to the end of the book of Acts, this confidence, this security. It's not arrogance. It's not presumption. It's just faith. It's faith claiming the promises of God. And if you're denying the promises of God, that's sin. Is it possible that we can have a whole denomination, but, but way more than our denomination, hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians who are sinning unknowingly, quenching the Holy Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit, but doing it unknowingly because they're not resting in the promises of God. That's what faith is. Faith, faith is not proving anything, right? Hebrews 11 establishes that point forever. Faith is taking God at His word. And if God says no condemnation, and then you get to the end of the book and it says no separation, and it's saying this is a demonstration of the love of God, the greatest demonstration of the love of God, the very heart of Seventh-day Adventist message is the love of God. Adventists say, some Adventists say, well, why, why should we preach these things? The Baptists can preach these things. Well, do they? They should if they know Christ, but do they? And in some, in some ways, it's really not even our business. We should be concerned about what we have been told is the heart of our message. And the three angels' message in verity is justification by faith. What does it take for that to sink in? And what does it take for us to grasp with naked faith these promises and start applying them to our life so that when that evil devil comes along, in the day of temptation, in the day of struggle, and challenges you and says, how can you possibly claim no condemnation when you've just behaved the way you have? That is the acid test of whether you understand and are applying the doctrine or not. These doctrines are not just so we can fall out. These doctrines are not just to show how smart we are. These doctrines are given so that we become like Christ. That's the ultimate goal. And somebody is not going to progress in holiness and sanctification and godliness unless they are convinced, totally convinced, that God is always for them even when they fall flat on their face. Peter, I've prayed for you. Did Jesus abandon Peter? Okay, well, if we only had that one story 
in the New Testament when one of the strongest, greatest leaders in the early Christian church denied his Lord with curses and swearing. Most of us have never done anything as shameful as that. And it was shameful, and it was really, really bad. Did Jesus abandon him? Was he suddenly condemned? Jesus says, no, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith does not fail. Guess what? Somebody's praying for you right now in heaven. And how much that is part of the Seventh-day Adventist message, that Jesus is our high priest. And it seems that we struggle to know how to apply these things. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You are in the palm of my hand, and if you're in the palm of his hand, if you are in Christ, in Ephesians 5, talking of marriage, he says we are part of his flesh, we are part of his body. That's how close the connection is. Now, as we wrap up here, don't you think that Almighty God, who is dwelling within you through His Holy Spirit, and you start to become rebellious, you start to play around with sin, you start to be flippant, don't you think that God has ways of correcting you? The book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians especially, addresses that issue. Now, some of you will be laid on your sickbed, and some will be laid in your grave. And still the promise is sure, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We call that the discipline, the chastisement of God. It takes many forms. Let's totally get away from denying the plain truth of Scripture. If it says no condemnation, it means no condemnation. And if you are the kind of Christian Seventh-day Adventist who says, Pastor, it just sounds too easy, it's just too simplistic to say that grace covers everything, well, you read verse 4, which we're not necessarily doing today. And the whole purpose is that we walk in the commandments of God, Amen. that we live a godly life. So nothing that is said by Paul, by myself, or any other preacher, teacher, church member who's trying to understand this concept of righteousness by faith, nothing ever should be presented to imply that we shouldn't live a godly life to the full, to the max. It's just that people flourish spiritually when they're secure with God. We can see that in our own families, if we think about it. If you have a child that doesn't really know that mom and dad really love me, and they don't show that, very, very hard for them to grow up and have a good understanding and, 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 and flourish as a human being the way that they should. So we can see that on a human level. What I'm saying is we should see that on a spiritual, divine level too. God has covered all the bases. Hopefully you and I have embraced Jesus so that we're brought into His plan. His plan, because He is God, will be finished. There's no reason to think 
that anyone in this room this morning is going to be lost. We shouldn't think that way. We should cling on to Jesus Christ. In fact, there are some translations that instead of saying the faith of God's people, it's faith in the faithfulness of God. Faith in the faithfulness of God. Was Jesus faithful? To the ultimate. So we put our faith in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for us being able in a small way to touch on this great chapter of Romans 8, one of the great gems in all of Scripture, and encourage everybody to to read that and to devour it and to make it part of ourselves. Lord, all of this no condemnation and being in Christ is all possible through this amazing person, Jesus Christ, who died for each one of us on the cross. And I pray, Lord, that no matter what we've done, and in a sense, no matter what we will do, that we will forget what Christ has done for us. The devil will try and veil that from us in some clever, subtle way. May each one of us preach it to ourselves each day, teach it to ourselves, dig these things out, apply them, Lord. It's as though we can know them one day and then we forget them the next hour. So apply these truths to our, faith, to, to our lives, to our faith, so that we can grow and flourish in Christ. For in his name we thank you. Amen.